Episode 12 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Here we are in the studio, Russ and Mike. Yeah, the R&M studio. The R&M studio. And we're still under prohibition. Yeah, except that we're not prohibiting ourselves from anything, are we? No, we're not. Uh, we are here. And Today we've downgraded to a nice beer, but we'll... Uh... Yes, we're recording earlier than usual, so we have the fantastic uh, Suntory Premium Malts. Yes, uh, our uh, salutations to Suntory yeah. for their fine adult beverage. And later we've got some uh, Italian sausages and Very steaks. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, and French wine. French wine. Yeah, I should have gotten a, we should have gone for an Italian wine. But, I've got some know, Italians, okay. just in case that doesn't... Um, okay. It doesn't work out. It'll yeah. work. It's it's Bordeaux. It'll be fine. But this is the <laughs> uh, the long Japanese golden week, as yes, it's called, it is. with a mishmash of holidays that are packed together. And uh, since you can't uh, go out to a restaurant or have a beverage out on the town, we thought we'd just enjoy the afternoon talking about music. Indeed. Like we, we do, do every day. Now we've got... That's <laughs> my whole life now. That's right. <laughs> Boy, this takes a lot of research to get... Going yeah. every week, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the only thing that this this uh, podcast has changed about my life is that now I spend an hour and a half a week talking about music on the internet. I'm still listening to all the music yeah. that I ordinarily would listen to. Yeah, but it's know? helped me focus, and also, um, mm-hmm. yeah, because I know I'm not going to remember everything I'd like to say. So, right, uh, take some notes and uh, review things. Uh, but we've all got right. a nice, interesting program this. Week and we before we get into that, I'd like to remind our listeners that uh, in the episode description you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. And at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, where you can follow us at username Adult Music Podcast. If you can't see the full description or list on the app that you're using, please check us out on our host Podbean. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. If you give us a ranking or write a review, it will help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which will help us grow our audience. So if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, also our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Hmm. Yeah, and well, we've had a good week. We're over 700 downloads now. We're yeah. reaching the corners of the earth. We are. That's but pretty But we'd like exciting. to hear more from our listeners uh, because they're all over the place. Yeah. And uh, we'd like to know who they are. So please, uh, if you enjoy, if you don't enjoy, uh, <laughs> tell us anyway. Yeah, tell uh, us. Anyway. Well, you can help us make it, help you enjoy it more just yeah. by letting us know what you want to yeah, hear. We'd like to hear from you. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to start... Early, early period. Should we just dive in? 
Well, I meant we would start with early music. Early music, yes. yes. Okay, we are about as well. This isn't as early as it gets, but this is no. early Baroque yeah. from the the beginning of the Baroque era, which was around the year. Well, the Baroque era started in around the year sixteen hundred with mm. the first operas, um, which were uh, performed in Florence. And I actually visited the. Uh, the place by the Arno River where the first operas were performed, where the whole idea of opera started. Did you know opera is the longest um, continuous art form in the Western world? Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, still going. So it's still kind of in the same sort of... Um, it's still the same genre. I guess... I don't know how that works because it seems to me like drama would be longer, but I guess it hmm. changed or I don't know. I don't, I don't know how they figured that out. don't know. But anyway... Don't worry. This is not an opera. This is um, a vocal recital by Anna Lucia Richter and with Luca Pianca directing Ensemble Claudiana. And it's um, an album of music by Monteverdi, Claudio Monteverdi, called Il Delirio della Passione. Okay. Fun fact, by the way, about Monteverdi. Did you know that if he was um, American or more accurately German, uh more really American, his name would be Claude Greenberg. And uh, aren't we glad he's Italian? <laughs> yeah. I didn't think of that. It's, yeah. it's much nicer, okay? Mm. All right. Monteverdi. Okay. Now, the album is called Il Delirio della Passione. This is a, um, a recital of... It's actually kind of a Monteverdi's greatest hits for solo voice album I think okay because it has a lot of really popular it's got um, um, things that he wrote that aren't major goals yeah it's got uh, major goals arias canzonettas and a couple sacred pieces here too he has a major goal I think it has only one major goal and one sacred piece only too mm. it's got uh, Confitabor TB Domine which we'll get to in a moment alright this this album starts with um, the opening of Monteverdi's first opera and really the first successful opera um, ever performed, uh, L'Orfeo, Orpheus, uh, which was uh, first performed, in, was composed, I guess, or first performed in 1607 in Florence, Italy, um, to a uh, group of, um, gee, I should have looked this up, <laughs> to a group of uh, people in this, uh, in the uh, palace in um, Florence. I guess mm. it was the uh, Medici family, I'm guessing. That, that put this on. Now, she starts, this is Anna Lucia Richter, with the um, prologue to the opera in which she comes out and announces herself as the goddess musica, music. All right. Now, I want, I want to kind of, this, this was an opera. I want to put this in, in a sort of perspective um, so that we can kind of really appreciate what's happening here in this. We're not going to hear the whole opera, obviously, but it's just this one part. But you have to imagine that you're in this hall that day. Now, think about what you remember. Now, some of our listeners will be old enough to remember uh, maybe the way the Beatles um, first like kind of appeared on the scene. I've had people tell me, you know, I was born in uh, 1965, so the Beatles were already um, uh, in existence. Incidentally, uh, I found out that the the number one song in the United States when I, the day I was born was Help by the Beatles. And I just want to say how appropriate that title is to my life. Anyway, besides <laughs> ignoring that point, um, uh, people talk about how there was a pre-Beatles period. And there was rock and roll and it was all exciting. And then the Beatles came and like everything changed. 
Okay. I think I personally had a similar experience with um, Star Wars when Star Wars came out in 1977. That's all anybody talked about that year. I remember it really well. Um, so something changed. And I think um, in the 1999, if if people were young enough to remember The Matrix coming out in uh, movie theaters with those spectacular special effects, which are now rather old-fashioned, but at the yes. time, they were just eye-popping. It was just amazing yeah. to see. Star Wars 2, planets exploding. We had never seen anything like this. Uh, the Beatles were a sound that no one had ever heard, and I, I, I imagine um, for a lot of people, Elvis Presley as well. Now, well, in the year 1607, opera was kind of a new thing. Now, there were operas before um, Monteverdi's Orfeo. Um, Jacopo Peri is credited with the first opera, Eurydice, the same story. Eurydice is Orpheus's squeeze, as it were, his uh, girlfriend who uh, gets uh, who gets uh, bitten on the ankle by a snake and dies. And then Orpheus, mm-hmm. Orpheus has to go to the, um, the afterlife to retrieve her. And uh, he... He's he's achieve, he's achieves it, but then he looks back at her and she has to go back and and then he's torn apart apart by wild um, women <laughs> when he gets in, in in later days. Anyway, that's besides Help. that's besides the point. Yeah, I think the uh, I forget who it was the um, not the Furies. I forget. Anyway, the the point is Monteverdi has the first successful opera because he figured out that the Italian language, you know, in order to get the opera to be, the emotion in the opera to register, um, say in Italian for him, um, that the accented um, uh, sounds in the word, the accented syllables, would have to be also accented sort of in the music. So it should come at some sort of musical peak or on some sort of, you know, beat that, you know, you know, kind of outline that accent. And uh, this really knocked people out. In opera, and as you know, today, there are probably some listeners um, that we have that are really opera fanatics. They really know they're under this. The opera really casts a spell when you're, you're really into it. Now, you have to imagine you're in this hall. It, it must have been like, not quite a Beatles-like effect with people going crazy, but the magic spell that this opera must have... Um, um, you know, put over the, its uh, listeners. This woman comes out. You, you're hearing this um, kind of introduction. Now, on this recording, it's uh, there's a lot of percussion, which I got to confess, I didn't really like very much. It makes it a little more cheerful than I think it should be. Um, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, that's just the interpretive um, decision that uh, Ensemble Claudiana made. Uh, for Baroque music, we don't have precise... Um, directions of how the music has to be played. So there's a lot of room for interpretation. Um, Anyway, this woman comes out and in this new style of singing, she announces that she's from the the river Permesso and she has come, this goddess, that she's a goddess, and she's here to tell the story of Orpheus. And the, I just imagine that the, um, the audience must have been under just this incredible spell. Now think about that when you listen to this, okay? It's a really, uh, it's it's actually very different than a lot of um, later opera that would come. At this point, the, the, the full-on operatic voice that we heard with uh, Lisa Davidson a few weeks ago wasn't, wasn't in existence. I mean, this, they had this idea that, you know, to sing or to chant the words would make them carry further in the hall. And this is how opera started. And gradually, these techniques developed to make the, the voice louder and louder and project further and further. 
Yeah, that wasn't in existence here. So they just sort of sang in a chant-like way. So anyway, the recording starts like that um, with the prologue from um, uh, Orfeo. Really the beginning from Monteverdi. Well, he, he had major goals before that, but um, this was his first really big success. And uh, this is a nice um, uh, performance of the piece. Um, one of the things about this particular recording... Um, Ana Lucia Richter's voice is very far forward. Uh, I kind of wish we could hear the um, the ensemble a little closer, or her ju- just a little farther back. Not enough so that the room noise takes over, but she's very, very close. Now, one of the good things about that is she has this almost flawless voice. The uh, tone is really beautiful, uh, so we could hear all of that, and um, that's great. But I just kind of wanted a little more balance in this particular. Um, you know, it, it really in the beginning of this whole recital, once we get past the uh, Lamento Dariana, this seems to fix itself, or at least maybe my ears adjusted. I don't know which. Okay, so anyway, we start with that. Uh, we go on to um, a few pieces. Zephyro Torna, which is um, Zephyro is the, the wind god, and we kind of get this sense of the soprano floating on the wind with this um, nice kind of um, undulating sort of um, uh, accompaniment that she gets. It's a really beautiful and cheerful uh, tune from 1632, much later than Orpheus. A few other tunes, La Mia Turca, and then we get to the centerpiece of the recital, the Lamento Dariana. This is from an opera that's been lost called Lariana. Okay, this goes through a lot of emotions. It's a real showpiece for a soprano of in this type of music. Um, so it might not seem as spectacular as it would have at the time because we've had so much more opera afterwards. You know, so we kind of, we've our ears have gotten kind of like um, a little spoiled for you know just you know this this kind of um, this kind of music, but it goes through a lot of the emotions at the time. Think of this as sort of like um, if anybody ever you know remembers the movie Citizen Kane by Orson Welles, it used all the uh, photographic techniques known at the time. So it, it it's almost it was almost like a almost like a study film of these kind of techniques. This is actually true of this lament. It uses all these kind of vocal techniques and musical techniques to express emotion that were known at the time. This actually happens in the opera Orfeo too, when Orfeo sings to uh, uh, Pluto to, uh, to, you know, to um, convince him to let him have Ariana back. All right. And uh, so it's, it's, again, the the voice is just fantastic in this. And um, it's a shame. Lariana, this opera has been lost. Okay, so we can't hear the whole opera. And with a centerpiece like this, boy, what a loss that is. I would really love to hear all of that. Ariana, of course, is um, she's stranded on the island of Naxos and uh, she can't get off. And she's uh, Mrs. Theseus, who has gone off somewhere to do whatever it was he was going to do. And uh, she's lamenting his... Um, his, his loss, okay? The rest of the program goes into, um, we have a Purtimio, oh, really beautiful piece from uh, uh, Popea's Coronation, L'Incoronazione di Popea, a very late a Monteverdi opera from 1643. Um, and then um, we have um, some samples of other works of his Scherzi Musicali et pur dunque vero then we get our religious work Confitebor Tibi Domine a rather a cheerful um, setting of this seemingly serious text I was kind of interested to hear that he uh, he had said it this way uh, that's a late text too 1641 then we get a major goal the only one on the uh, the uh, album um, I'm kind of there's a 
there are four soloists singing, four vocal soloists singing with her, a countertenor, ten, two tenors and a bass um, singing the magical part. And then she, um, uh, Richter comes in and kind of sings the solo bit. And we end with um, two works from uh, Quarto Scherzo delle Ariose Vaghezze from 1624, Si Dolce il Tormento, Oime Chiocado, which are also very good, but we've really heard the, the key works up to this point. I, I liked this album a lot, mostly because, well, first of all, it's it's a nice collection of um, really some of the best of Monteverdi's um, vocal works for solo voice in one recording. This is kind of rare. Usually we hear like an entire opera or maybe an entire set of major goals, and this is sort of a variety um, piece. Um, I, I liked the voice. I thought at the beginning of the recital it was too far forward. Um, it's a it's it's a gorgeous voice. I just kind of wish it had just a little less presence at the very beginning, or at least that the uh, ensemble had more presence. But I feel like that either my ear adjusted or the uh, recording changed. Um, it sounded better to me towards the end. Anyway, for me, this is highly recommendable. What do you think? This uh, not being a huge fan of opera or classical vocals in general, I found this to be more enjoyable for me than uh, the Lisa Davidson we listened to before. It's just too overwhelming that soprano hitting the, you know, climax note in every piece. Just as I mentioned, it's like reaching for a nerve in my head. Um, (laughs) I don't mind that if the work is written to be sung like that, mm, but that wasn't always the case on that recording. I found uh, Richter's voice uh, never overpowering. Uh, Mm. Actually, I believe I read that this will be her last recording as soprano. Which she's going to change to mezzo-soprano. Okay. Um, but... Uh, you have to read into that. Look into that a little bit. I don't know if her... Just at, with aging, her voice is changing. The yeah, that's register. probably yeah. the case. That but, often happens. Yeah, I found her voice, um, you know, to me, very easy to listen to. Yeah. Balanced and beautiful. Um, I enjoyed it. I also... But I... As much, I enjoyed the ensemble playing. Yeah. As you mentioned, it, it could have been f- a little bit more forward. But especially in the first uh, piece, the contrasting vocal and then ensemble sections yeah. I thought were it's kind of a trade-off and going back and forth and so I yeah. I like that and the contrast sometimes the ensemble was soft and then sometimes uh, spirited I think that percussion there's like a tambourine bringing like a dance type of thing to it so I, I liked the uh, it's a small ensemble mm. but I I really enjoyed the arrangement. Uh, I liked the, uh, what is it? La Mia Turca, My Turkish Girl. Yeah. Um, this has some very interesting pitch play. Right. Um, it had the uh, the Turkish modes. Yeah. Like, and you know. bending of the pitch yeah. there, which you're probably not going to hear, you know, later on in the Baroque period, anything right. like that. So I enjoyed that. So he had kind of a Turkish Arabic kind of like yes. an understanding of these, um, these modes. These yeah. modes at the time. Yeah. Um, what's the uh, track? Yeah. The track eight, uh, Porto Miro. I gaze upon you. Uh, this is the duet with the countertenor, right. uh, Dmitry Sinkovsky. Yeah, well, I thought that was you know really lovely. Yeah, it was uh, like heart meltingly beautiful. Yeah. It was really nice. Um, I kind of said, "Wow!" So I, I actually had to look, it, look him up yeah. and see him singing, and you see this you know guy with a beard with that voice, and you're like, "No, this." Did, did, does he actually yeah, have a beard? Yeah, 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 you look through yeah, yeah, his yeah. picture. He's I, not in the uh, yeah, CD uh, here on a different work. Um, okay. Also. I liked track 10, uh, the Confitebore TV Domine. Uh, I like the vocal and violin interplay here. Mm. Um, it's yeah. a nice contrast that yeah. uh, stuck out on this piece. And the thing that I really liked about the instrumentation most on this is this has 
cornetto. Ah, yes. And, okay, so what is cornetto? Uh, it's fun to look back at uh, sketches from this period of instruments. Uh, it's sort of the... Um, antecedent of uh, no no it's not I, I shouldn't use that word because it's a music that has uh, no modern evolution uh, an instrument with no modern evolution uh, in this time period you know brass trump so the trumpet was sort of relegated to fanfare playing because mm. the valve had not been engineered yet so right. the trumpets were you know set limited to set pitches and so they could play the fanfares but for playing melodies and scales you, you just couldn't do it right. so they had the cornetto which is sort of a a wooden trumpet with sound holes but unlike a woodwind instrument it has a mouthpiece similar mm -hmm. to a brass instrument mm -hmm. and so there's no modern instrument that has this combination. I think, you know, the closest thing you're going to come is something that Roland Kirk invented uh, <laughs> when he had like all those saxes and a couple of his own instruments. I believe he had something with like a, tr a trumpet mouthpiece buzzing into a saxophone body. But that's basically right. what you have here. And uh, on these two tracks, although, as you mentioned, they're after sort of the main um, meat of the vocal works, but track 12, uh, si dolce er tormento mm. and 13 oime chiocado if I'm saying that right yeah, listen right. to the uh, cornetto playing on yeah. here this is some great agility uh, fast playing with some trills uh, and it's a sound we don't you know, you're not going to hear usually yeah. uh, recorded. I, I guess you know if you listen to this ensemble, yeah, Claudiana. I was, I was focused on the voice and the and the yeah. uh, the text, so I kind of have to go back now. Yeah, uh, listen to that because it's a you know, it's a really unique sound. Uh, it's it's made with a buzzing amateur, but yet mm. it's, you know, playing with sound holes. And uh, now yeah. we've diverged into woodwinds and brass, but this is sort of like, yeah. uh, you know, something interesting. So that was interesting The wonderful for world me. of period instruments. Yes, period it instruments. It really just changed but, everything. But uh, whoever, I didn't note the player's name, but he is very virtuosic uh, yeah. on the cornetto. So. Yeah. For the record, I just want to say this is one of the periods of history I would have felt comfortable living in. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know even without the current medicine and sort of things available to us, yes. I think, uh, well, I, I guess you would have had to be a nobleman. You know, if I was kind of like some peasant working in the field, I wouldn't have been too happy. <laughs> yeah. You know, at any point in history. But, um, you know, to have been at that audience. Huh? The, I would have been a cornetto player. You would have been yeah. a cornetto player? Yeah. That would have been, yeah. That was kind of like a... Yeah, you, in those days, I guess, I guess you're a court musician. You're you're doing okay, but um, maybe I don't know. Anyway, I think uh, what we want to say about that, what I want to say about this, anyway, is that at the if you remember the movie uh, Ghostbusters, um, when who are you going to call? Yeah, who are you going to call? One of the characters says, "When somebody asks you if you are God, you say yes." It was the advice he gave um, at the beginning of this recording. Um, the singer in the first aria, announces herself as a god, and I say, yes, it's so good. I love this. I love this period, really. It might, it may take, uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar with it, it might take a little um, adjustment, you know, because it's kind of a little unusual sounding, but it's so beautiful. All the, uh, the melisma, melisma is kind of, is when a single vowel is sung on different notes okay you get a lot of this ah, 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 you know this kind of thing yeah, and uh you do I that really so well much. i like when you i, I didn't <laughs> articulate each one i just kind of um that's that's my beer voice oh 
<laughs> well, you know, I like this more than I thought I would. Uh, right. And the first time I was like, oh, Mike's going to pick some more opera stuff I got to listen to. But then, you know, I said, oh, wait, this is cool. And then I listened to it uh, again, and I liked it even more. So it grows on you. Yeah. Well, like you, Russ, I kind of prefer instrumental music to vocal music. And yet here we are on the podcast. We've, we've done so much vocal music yeah. so far. It's kind of surprising even to me. It's those damn Grammy Awards that uh, it's got that, to us. No, and it's I'm also just... just the the recordings that have come out are being they're being recommended and I'm saying oh I have to hear this and then yeah. there's just some sort of things that uh, are coming out oh by the way to listeners um, we've done all these um um you know reviews that we well reviews we've talked about all these recordings by sopranos we've got some men coming up soon don't worry I've got oh, okay. I've, I've got you I've got I've got you people who want to hear the male voice covered coming in the next few weeks I don't know I, I don't know exactly when but all right we'll we'll see. Well, that's enough vocalists for one episode. And that's uh, enough of Mr. Claude Greenberg. Claude Greenberg. Thankfully, he didn't emigrate and change his name. Claudio Monteverdi. Yes. It's a far more beautiful name. Oh, boy. Anyway, on to the next recording. <laughs> boy, this is really... Uh, are we talking too fast? What do you think? Am I... Uh, no, no, no. We're, we're good? doing all right. Everybody we're okay? Getting, if we drink some more beer, we might slow down. Yeah. <laughs> we might go silent. We might. <laughs> you never know. I can call the caterers whenever we're ready. Yeah. Okay, now this is a recording. The next one is a recording I've had like on the uh, back burner for a long time, and I just never kind of found a slot for it. And this is uh, Edward Elgar's Violin Concerto paired with his Violin Sonata. Now- and These are on the Erato label. Yeah, Erato or- Erato or Erato? Erato sounds like erotic, erotic, which kind of goes with adult music. Yeah, but Erato is one of the muses, by the That's way. That's right. One of the Erato. muses from ancient That's probably Greece. what's from like Naxos, Erato. Yeah, well, All Naxos right. is an island. Yeah. So, I, used to, I used to just know all this stuff off the top of my head. Yeah. Now it's just kind of They're kind of cool words for record labels, though. They are, so it's yeah. probably Erato. Yeah. Yeah. Erato, rather. Yeah, Erato. Um Okay, so this this particular recording of Elgar, there have been a few of these in the past year, but this one is the Renaud Capuçon uh, recording, French uh, violinist, and he's recording the violin concerto with um, the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Simon Rattle, uh, Sir Simon Rattle Sir Simon, now. Yes. Yeah, you got to say that. I still, I can't. I'm American. It's a British thing. Yeah, we don't care. Yeah, I, sir. Good on, yeah. good on you. And, uh, you yeah. know, it, but got, there's too many sirs. I got to call him sirs. There's that, too many sirs, you know. That was actually- Isn't Ravel, it Sir Elton John as that, well? That was Ravel's criticism of uh, of English music. I think Vaughan Williams asked him at the time in the early 20th century, there weren't all that many, you know, why aren't there all that many- um, you know, great English composers. I mean, there are now, but you know, yeah. before that, there weren't. There was Gilbert and Sullivan, and between Purcell and Gilbert and Sullivan, there was really there weren't mm. many. And um, Ravel's um, response was, "You have too many sirs." <laughs> okay, and I understand that. It's they, they kind of just elevate people to was, this high level. Is Elgar a sir? I don't know. I don't think mm. so. I don't know. It's all too. Yeah, he should a, be because he he's be. he's. Uh, services to British music boy he's about well if I if I could go back in time and meet him I'd at least call him Mr. Oh I, I, <laughs> well I just call, say sir actually my my favorite um, British composer uh, Rafe Vaughn Williams oh yeah is not a sir oh so there you go come on queen 
Well, Let's get he's, going. He's, he's, he's gone now. Can you do this posthumously? Or? But the thing is, yeah, she was, um, uh, Queen Elizabeth was, uh, Vaughn Williams was still alive when Queen, Queen Elizabeth yeah, was. Yeah, because she's been alive forever. <laughs> yeah. She's been alive for a long time. And in fact, I think he wrote, <coughs> excuse me, music for her coronation. Hmm. <coughs> oh, dry mouth. Anyway, excuse me, listeners. Okay. Now, this um, work is paired with the Elgar's Violin Sonata, a work that I didn't know. And uh, the pianist on this work is Stephen Huff, of all people, um, who was featured in our first podcast ever. Yes. Okay, so this is was a very exciting release for me. And um, I have to say, it lived up to expectations, and it was a little surprising, too. Now, the Elgar Violin Concerto, I'm familiar with from my... Immediately post-college days, I remember a memorable um, concert of British music held at the Sanders Theater in Harvard University. Um, I didn't go to Harvard. I went to Boston University. But um, uh, I went. I attended this concert and uh, no one other than Oscar Shumsky, one of the great uh, violin um, prodig- prodigies, um, virtuosos, virtuosi of the 20th century, played it. And there were some luminaries in attendance. It was really a memorable day. And I remembered the work very well, so I was kind of happy to hear it again here. <coughs> oh, man. I think I need a drink. I think you need more beer. More beer. I'll get that in a minute. Okay. Um, Elgar himself, by the way, was a violinist. Uh, most composers are pianists. Okay, so um, he had a real feeling for this idiom, and there are certain things about the violin that feature in this. Okay, one of the, the things, when this... Okay, so the violin concerto starts. And this is a extremely long It concerto. is very long, yeah. yeah. This, each movement is very long. Yeah, each movement is... There are more than 10 minutes long. The, the two outer movements are almost 20 minutes long. Um, but that shouldn't put you off because it is no, no. very melodic and memorable and enjoyable. Okay, so the opening allegro... Um, one of the interesting things I noticed right away is Simon Rattle you know, keeps the phrasing crisp and disconnects the orchestral passages. Okay, so it doesn't like all like flow like a romantic work normally would and like other performances that I've heard of this work um, do. So it's it's almost like he wants to isolate each orchestral phrase, um, which I found kind of an interesting approach. I haven't really figured out why he chose um, this approach, what it does for the soloist, but they stand out. Okay, these phrases stand out. Um, maybe they make it a little more digestible for the listener. He doesn't get lost in the whole flow of the music, or she. Okay? And then Capuçon enters, and um, it takes a while for the violin to actually uh, be heard in this work. It finishes a phrase um, for the orchestra. Yeah, there's he- some... I I noticed that the, when the violin enters, then it, it has this kind of flowing lines that yeah. start and you're kind of wondering hmm. and then there's these rising triplet figures and then you know the presence is ex- exerted more and uh then you get a really kind of soft lovely um minor rubato melody from the violin and and it takes a while for it to gain in intensity and then it 
sort of transforms transforms into this a lot of 16th note figures right. and then you realize well this is this is yeah. a really technically uh advanced piece to play it um, is and it's it comes from a you know as i said a composer who really understands the violin the other well. thing i listening to there's a lot going on here and uh so i, I looked up the score and analysis there's there's as many as six themes being developed in this first movement. Mm. There's a, a lot. There, <laughs> he was yeah, trying to do music. a lot in one movement. Uh, well, he's got the time for it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the, the, actually, I want to say Capuzon's entry is a little surprising. It's slow mm-hmm. and rather lugubrious. Usually, um, the violist will... Th- I don't say usually, but on the recordings or the performances I've heard, the violinist will sort of end that orchestral phrase with some kind of like a it's kind of like this heartfelt sort of statement okay and but um Capuzon is really dragging this out a bit and he manages to get a lot of emotional depth out of the line sort of in the way that we talked about with uh Stephen Isserlis on the um Proust recording of the mm-hmm. Proust Salon kind of pieces a few weeks ago this is a violinist who has a lot of experience and can really draw a lot out of the violin I was kind of interested in that he keeps that up too he he keeps that tone every note he plays registers emotionally and then he starts um getting into like you said the uh figuration well you know that's a that's a different story that's all about the uh, the phrasing and maintaining the tone while doing that this is a pretty dry recording there's a um, lot of detail because of that what yeah what i wanted to say about the record i put this at the end but since you brought it up mm-hmm. the um the violin is uh seems to be rather close mic'd mm. which is it's generally good because you can hear in clear detail what the violin is doing um it's never cloudy and right. so the mm. violin sounds great i was a little bit disappointed in the orchestral recording um i i sounds to me that i guess this is a studio recording i'm guessing yeah but there's hardly any spatial feeling in yeah. here. You, you can hear everything clearly, but there's no sense of uh, space. And so it's a really sort of flat sort it's, of it's canvas to me. It's a very close recording, yeah. And um, there's a little bit, um, well, you know, of course, when we get into the the uh, the sonata with just the piano and mm. the violin, I, I found that the balance there was much, you know, sounds sort of fulfilling to me, but I was... I was hoping for some more sort of spatial dynamics with the orchestral parts so that I could hear the instruments, you know, sort of separated. But I didn't really get that right. uh, in this in this recording. I'm thinking, well, the the violin concerto is really the uh, centerpiece here on yeah. this recording. That's the one everybody wants to hear. But I really feel like it, it kind of dwarfs the um, the piano, the the violin mm. sonata, which kind of sounds a lot. It's it's shorter and it's you know, less lush, needless to mm. say, because it's it's played with a piano. I really feel like they should have reversed the order of the pieces to make a good program. You know, just go yeah, from small yeah. to big rather than big to small. Then one interesting thing. Oh, I don't know if you have more to say about the first movement. Um, I I just said it performance wise, it's really great oh, and it's a little fabulous, unique yeah. too. Um, mm. just because of the the conducting. The conducting. Um, they 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 took a rather interesting and sort of um, new approach I thought to mm-hmm. this and I thought Capuzon, um, um he's, a, he's a French violinist and uh, he's he's got a British orchestra playing behind him and then he's got a British pianist accompanying him in the sonata so I thought that was a wise choice so he gets the uh, the feeling of the British idiom mm. in there uh, he's, he sounds like he's uh, 
on top of this piece, though. It doesn't really sound like there are any like issues with idiom. Yeah, he no, no. he knows what he's doing. Okay. I want to say, okay, that's about it. The first movement. Um, yeah, what I thought was interesting. Then, when the second movement comes, I thought, that, well, this something here is very uh, different in mood and tonality. You know, mm-hmm. so I thought, and so I went over to the piano just to check out. Of course, you know, in this period, the music often changes keys and you know moves uh, its tonal music, but it's rather you know, freely uh, constructed. Uh, mm-hmm. But I noticed that the second movement is uh, in B flat. Yeah. Which, you know, since it's a, a B minor concerto, it's kind of a strange choice for the the new tonic. Uh, right. But it does really change the mood. Right. And so it's so much so that I wanted to, I wanted to figure out why, you know, what exactly had changed here. Yeah, half um, a step down is kind yeah. of, that's kind of, what's... Well, um, so, it, yeah. it, you know, it, it, the mood... I don't know if it warms or something, but this second movement is—it's um, very sort of song-like with a emotive melody, mm-hmm. uh, the andante, and very enjoyable as well. And again, that capuzón tone, tone, mm-hmm. capuzón tone, really uh, brings us through. It's uh, you really this is this is a violin sound that it's it's a it's a pretty big sound. Uh, and you really can hang on it and really just revel in the lushness of it. It's yeah. really nice to hear in this place. And then in the third movement is a little is more dramatic once again. I want to point out something about the third movement, and I know this because um, I read about it and because I've actually seen this performed live in a small hall. There's a technique, and that only a violin of a, a composer who plays the violin would come up with, and you can hear it. Um, yeah, at about the uh, ten minute fifty three second mark, if you uh, check out the uh, you know the the recording uh, the, on the third movement, um, the um, violin section of the orchestra rubs on the neck of the violin without playing. It just kind of makes this kind of uh, sort of rustling sound. Before that, they play on the bridge, so it's kind of like this e kind of ghostly sound, and this kind of like brings that like down in volume another level mm-hmm. it, it's a really interesting effect and um i, I kind of like the way it registered here and i think this is the reason for the dry recording so that that moment registers uh, it's mm-hmm. it's it, it, it's really noticeable here it actually sounds louder than it usually does yeah, it could be hard to capture in a hall or something yeah, yeah normally i don't even notice it on the recording i'm like oh yeah i remember that part happened and uh mm. But but here it's you, you can actually if if you know if you know what it is if you've heard seen this play, piece played live you can you'll notice it when it comes up um, it's 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 present let's say okay um, and that's what I said it registers clearly on this recording um, it's uh, okay and yeah the the piece ends in a. Yeah, you can hear in a dramatic way. You can hear here that um, well, the the third movement is is very uh, technically difficult. Yes, it's got a lot of uh, very fast arpeggios, double stop uh, sort of techniques. Yeah, and by now, the violinist and, has been playing for a good half yeah. an hour. You have to keep in mind. <laughs> but thematically, uh, it it does re- revisit some of the things introduced. In both the first and second movements, so if you sort of if you listen carefully, yeah. yeah, you can hear those things carried over. And then it has a very kind of interesting uh, cadenza mm-hmm. that's accompanied. So, you know, in some works, you'll hear the you know the orchestra will pause and the violinist will 
you know, play right. uh, their own cadenza. But here, the orchestra keeps playing behind it. Hmm. Um, that's uh, just when you think it's going to hit the huge climax, then you have this kind of cadenza, which is uh, yeah, kind of interesting. And um, I'm sure it's composed by Elgar too. Oh I yeah, it's, yeah, um, it's very much uh, at this point they would they wouldn't out. allow the violinist to. <laughs> yeah, in the no, early no. 20th century they wouldn't no. allow that to happen. Yeah, um, so it was an interesting compositional choice uh, yeah. to have it ended. So yeah, very. Um, it's it's a long piece. Yeah, it's <laughs> it takes, very long. You know, I listened to it a couple times, which took a, a lot longer than a normal a concerto. But yeah, it's very satisfying. And if you consider all the elements, uh, this is a great composition. Yeah, just a historical note that um, composers from the earlier classical and early romantic era expected the uh, soloist to come up with the condensa himself. But really, since around Beethoven's time, Beethoven still expected the... Uh, you know, the soloists to come up with the cadenza, but he wrote a few of them out himself. He was, and co- composers got more and more controlling in mm. the romantic era. As you can imagine, they were fanatics. The music had to be played just so. Right. And this really reached its uh, peak in the 20th century where the composer was like a dictator and you had to do what he said. <laughs> All right. Even to the detriment of your health. Yes. Even to the, yes, <laughs> that, that is true. <laughs> And then it was composers. If you're wondering why there's such so much uh, odd music after that, like uh, John Cage, you know, it's to get away from that uh, mm-hmm. dictatorial control that um, composers gained. Now, the dictatorial control was not necessarily a bad thing for music. It gave us some incredible orchestration um, that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. People just wouldn't have followed these wacky rules right. <laughs> otherwise. But uh, yeah, you don't want to be dictated to. After all, we're Americans, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway, following this work comes the uh, Violent Sonata. Now, this was this was the first time I had ever heard this Hmm. work. I mean, I knew the concerto; Uh, it's it's pretty famous and it's massive. And the Violent Sonata is relatively small. Yeah, I was surprised uh, reading about this that Mm -hmm. um, it's actually not one of his more popular works. Uh, It's a nice work. Yeah, yeah, and I thought it was uh, you know. Very nice. It is. It's it's fairly short. Um, the pianist is Stephen Hoff, a great uh, soloist himself. Yeah, and I thought that uh, I don't know how much they have played together or rehearsed, but I, I don't think uh, they've ever played together. But who yeah, knows, though? I, yeah. uh, especially in the second movement, I thought the synchronicity, mm-hmm. be, the Hoff, you know, who is we often l- listen to him as a soloist, but. Uh, he's a great accompanist here, yeah. and he's really um, in perfect step backing the violin. Uh, so they have a a really good uh, sort of uh, musical bond with each other going right. on here. And um, yeah, he's uh, really helps to build the intensity in here with these kind of chiming chords that he puts there. So uh, I thought it was a very good pairing, uh, these two. Yeah, and again, I think Stephen Huff uh, being British kind of like brought that kind of British. El- Elgar really is the most British of all composers. I mean, right. He sounds British, you know. If you think of the pomp and circumstance marches, I mean, what can you, how more British can you get? <laughs> you know, they play these, they play one of them at uh, even American graduation right. ceremonies. Yeah. They're very ceremonial sounding. Yes. And so, yeah, they get that, um, um, that sound here. I should mention that Stephen Huff is probably my favorite pianist him and Stephen Osborne I can't decide I go back and forth between mm-hmm. the two but those are my two favorite current pianists 
um, that are before the public today. And in fact, I I love a lot of other ones too. But I, I I'm gonna plug for them. Anyway, the um yeah the um after the concerto though, this kind of comes on. I, I think hey, you might want to listen to this first, or um, you might want to just turn the recording off after the concerto and go back and hear the sonata the next day when your mind is clear because yeah. it's such a, a contrast in sound mm. and the sonata sounds really small compared to the concerto so I think you want to hear it with clean ears this should, this should be heard like in two parts I think mm. take a break between the concerto and the sonata the sonata is well worth hearing and this is a pretty great performance uh, Capuzone is just fantastic all the way through and Stephen Huff of course I just love and he, yeah. he's really great here and the ending is well I found that the third movement the Allegro non Troppo, mm. where it's fast but not too fast, right? Uh, uh, the harmony is really interesting here, uh, and then it switches to a major key ending. So the mood at the end yeah. is sort of up, of is kind of surprising to me. And then it, it doesn't mm. go out with a bang, it's kind of actually just uh, the statement is done, and so the piece just ends. Uh, but yeah, enjoyable piece. I'm surprised that it doesn't have you know a big following uh among elgar's pieces or violin sonatas in general because it's enjoyable yeah violinists get out there and play this piece yeah. maybe it's because you know british music tends to have really british sounding qualities to it but i think they're they're becoming fairly universal now people can play this sure start playing it students <laughs> okay <laughs> anyway highly recommended recording this is really fantastic playing from capuzon and uh his his accompanists if you can call them that they're they're kind of pretty important in their mm. own right are both fantastic as well yeah. uh, huff manages uh, stephen huff ma- really matches um capuzon in intensity in the in the violin sonata uh well worth hearing really great okay so there you go one of the I don't know about one of my recordings of the year, but probably one of the recordings of the year as, if, as far as critics go. Hmm. And um, there you go. All right. Next, we have some contemporary music. Wait, don't go away. <laughs> it's, it's actually really good. People yeah. give contemporary music a bit of a... You know, it's 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 a little harder to listen to, they say, but I, I don't really agree with that. I think we should be listening to this. It's really where we are now. Well, mm. yeah, some, you know, I'm, uh, some of it I really enjoy and other ones uh, not so much uh, here. I was rather amused by yeah. this okay. uh, well, next Well, some of it you don't enjoy. Well, it's challenging, Russ. It's challenging. Yes, challenging you have yeah. to accept the challenge. Yes. This is not challenging music, okay? No, no, this no. Is- this, is a pro- this you can approach and uh, uh, make some interesting, enjoyable, and humorous observations uh, with. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know. I kind of... I'm interested to hear what those humorous observations okay. are because I kind of, right. I kind of liked this. Okay, this well, let's from, let it fly then. This is from the uh, Chinese composer, Chinese, I guess, American composer. Uh, he was born in China, Bright Sheng. Okay, um, it's his violin concerto, another violin concerto called "Let Fly," which is really three movements cast as one movement. It's continuous. It's a continuous 27, 28 minute piece. And but there are three movements sort of in there. You can kind of follow them fairly easily. Um, then there's a concerto for orchestra called Zodiac Tales, and uh, finally Suzo Overture for the Suzo uh, Symphony Orchestra in Suzo, China. All of these um, 
all of these um, recordings were made uh, by Chinese orchestras in China. I'm just checking to see that. Yeah, they were all made in China and conducted by the composer himself, Bright Shang. Now, Shang, um, his, okay, he's known as Bright Shang. His, he was born Shang Zhongliang, okay? Um, he was born in Shanghai, okay? And uh, he uh, studied piano uh, at the age of four. He graduated from Shanghai Conservatory and he went on to continue his education in the United States at Queens College. Wow. Yeah. He's one of us. <laughs> and Columbia, you know, we didn't go to Queens College, but... Unbelievable. Uh, Queens, was, Queens was close by to my my native Brooklyn, let's say. And wow. Columbia University, very impressive. Okay. Yeah. The um, Ivy League school in Manhattan. However... Yeah. We have... Well, what is interesting about this is it's a, it's trying to bring in a very uh, Chinese ethnic element into classical music. Yes, uh, mm. which he does uh, in various ways. Yeah, in the uh, violin concerto um, composed in 2013, it's called "Let Fly," um, and the uh, soloist is Dan Zhu. Okay. Um, who I'm guessing is Chinese too, but I should probably look this up. <laughs> Let me see. No, it doesn't say. Ah, oh, well, anyway, we could probably find out about him in the, the booklet notes. Anyway, um, yeah, this um, work combined, it's it's really a Western sounding work, but it has Chinese yes. elements to it. The Chinese elements are mostly um, the pentatonic scales and the melody that kind of recall um, ancient Chinese song. Okay. Yeah, sort of uh, folk music yeah, scales. Yeah, Chinese folk music. Um, yeah, this one, he does like brass a lot, which is nice. Yeah. So there's there are some nice uh, brass interludes, hmm. uh, lots of low brass in this whole CD, uh, and some melodic uh, woodwind passages. Um, but actually, I much prefer the uh, rest of the program than uh, this violin concerto because I right, well yeah well go ahead uh, well I just want to say it's it's a very immediately appealing piece so if you're one of these people who um, is kind of like uh, apprehensive about listening to contemporary music uh, you can feel no fear about this very easy on the ear and rather enjoyable too yeah it's um being all in one one movement yeah. really uh, there's a lot of contrasts in here that makes it very interesting there's not a lot of continuity, uh, at least I listened to it two times. I still wasn't uh, getting the full connection. Mm. Uh, there's actually a very cinematic kind of middle section. It, it sounds very soundtrack-like. And yeah. there's a huge bombastic uh, drum part. It actually shook my house when I was uh, listening to it. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's. it's it's kind of a, it, it, you know it's sort of if you think about the uh, the the Beijing Olympics mm -hmm. the opening ceremony with those big kind of percussion yeah thing, it, it was sort of those yeah that and it's, kind but of it's sound. in the middle it's not yeah. a climax climax right. to the end of the piece it's in the middle right. uh, the thing with this piece though uh, you know in contrast to the Elgar that we just discussed is the uh, there's 
several sections in here that are focused on the extreme upper register of the <laughs> violin. And yeah. uh, this is really like, a, you know, a squeak festival. And at one point I thought I was going to be like attacked by a horde of wild rodents or something. Yeah, not, not, the, not the violin's fault. He's got no, a good tone. This is what he's being. Um, yeah, and then I, I looked, as I was experiencing yeah. this, uh, I looked and I saw, wait, there's another piece about mice, you know, with... Will these rodents be coming back to uh, kill me or something? Um, so that that part, uh, it comes earlier. And then after a quieter section, after the drums, this, those squeaks yeah. come back. And yeah, I, that was uh, getting on my nerves a bit. Uh, so, All right, but it was a yeah. new sound, and I sort of appreciated that. I'm always kind of happy to hear something I don't expect, uh, really, yeah. um, in, in, a, in a work like I that. I would have named it, you know, Let the Rodents Fly or something like well, that. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, because the next piece is called uh, the uh, is a, it's a concerto for orchestra, and it's called Zodiac Tales. Now, the Zodiac he's talking about, of course, is the Chinese, Chinese Zodiac, Zodiac, which um, features a new animal every year for a 12-year period. Um, and uh, the first one he does is the dragon, uh, the god of rain, which is the dragon. And this one, these kind of remind you talk about um, brass. He is a yeah. composer who likes brass a lot. This reminded me of the opening of the uh, Sinfonietta by Janicek, yeah, it's sim- right? Similar to that. Yeah. I, well, my listening note here says drunken brass opening with stabbing strings. I so thought it was a, really cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, you really feel like the brass mm-hmm. section was drinking beers uh, when they played this. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it's good um, to hear loud brass like that. It makes yeah, me kind of happy. And it, it's very brass, uh, and then and then it continues with brass, both sort of low brass and high brass, uh, contrasting lines. And then uh, I wrote uh, cataclysmic ending notes with gong. Of course, you, you have to have that gong. Try, yeah, there's a couple pieces in here where the gong uh, comes in. So yeah, it's very bombastic uh, as the god of rain. Yeah, should be, as as the god of rain should be. I, I appreciate yeah. the gong. I really love hearing yeah. that. Um, I remember Debussy really loves um, just oh, it's Chinese music, Orientalism, Asian, yeah, yeah the Ch- Asian music in general, and things, yeah. pagodas, and he also had um, the gamelan. You know, he used oh, the gamelan, yeah. 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 Actually, he oddly he used the uh, the gamelan. Well, no, this would make sense. The gamelan sound in his uh, piece pagodas for the piano, right? You know, it, it, like a, it's it doesn't sound like a gamelan, but it's sort of um, it's trying yeah. to evoke that atmosphere. Yep. You know, all right. Second movement. We have a few short movements coming yeah. up. Uh, the next one was of mice and cats. Um, this one started quietly and got um, a little bombastic. Do we know the um, story of the, uh, the the mouse is in the um, Chinese zodiac? It's one of yeah, the yeah, uh, but, the, but cat, the cat is the not. cat is not. Yeah. And so yeah, he he the album notes he describes these, but there's really no no insights musically. Uh, yeah. It's rather more they just sort give you a narrative fable like. Sort of uh, yeah. So what he's after? Yeah, what yeah. you get here. You've got uh, these sort of undulating low strings that sort of, I guess, represent the m- mouse and cat, uh, the, or the, maybe the mice running. And then you have these brass staccato jabs that yeah. maybe is the cat attacking. And um, then there's like these very loud descending strings with more brass jabs. And uh, then I... It gets a little more violent towards yeah, the I end. Yeah, I wrote the brass and drum battle <laughs> to yeah. the end with this very... It ends with this ascending string line that leaves you in suspense. Like, did the cat catch the mouse or something? Well, apparently so, he didn't because the mouse is still, yeah, uh, uh, is still in, the in the Zodiac. zodiac he so. kind of got in there. So the, the reason why the cat didn't get in the Zodiac is because when the, uh, I guess the 
uh, who was it? The sun god. They, he says it in the notes. I'm not going to look it yeah. up now. But uh, was choosing the animals to be in the zodiac. The cat was sleeping, and the mouse, mm. who was friends with him, didn't wake him up. So he kind of yeah. He uh, the cat is not included in the uh, Chinese zodiac uh, for that reason. Then we've got uh, the third movement, the three oh, lambs. The Jade Emperor. I'm sorry, oh, the Jade, Jade Emperor. Emperor. He was a godlike figure in Chinese mythology. Hmm. Did not yeah the the mice. Uh, kept the cat out of there all right the next movement is uh three lambs under three the lambs spring sun the spring sun this is a very short but pretty movement yeah. um nice flute and clarinet melody and then more woodwinds coming in it's focused on the woodwinds um it's nice i like how, this how one. does this figure in the zodiac though is there um, any lambs i guess this is, is the, a sheep the sheep the goat uh okay. not the okay yeah not a uh a sheep but a goat I guess alright the next movement the fourth movement is a little longer and also this is um, it's called the elephant eating serpent meaning the snake and this mm. is my uh, Chinese zodiac sign oh. that I was born in 1965 and I gotta say uh, Maestro Sheng doesn't uh, draw a very flattering picture of the snake <laughs> yeah this is an odd one too um, it's got uh, very kind of a heavy bowing rhythmic strings that build an intensity and then uh more brass uh trumpets with flutter tonguing like yeah that was kind of kind of interesting nice i liked that and then there's a very heavy it's kind of a march to the end almost uh where the serpent is uh eating the elephant i guess uh yeah but in his, um, you know, the serpent is in his program notes. Uh, the composer says that um, the serpent is known for its ability to swallow bigger objects than the size of its own body. And here's here's the part that got me. Thus, a Chinese metaphor describing a person's extreme greediness is a serpent who craves to eat an elephant. Oh. Does that does that mean me? Is he talking about me? No, no, somebody else we know. <laughs> somebody else we know. <laughs> Now I'm going to have to ask you who that is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so I am the year of the snake. What's, what's your, how about you? What I think you, I'm dog. You're the dog? Dog. Okay, you're yeah. the dog. Okay. So it is a good year. For, I think this year is a good year for the year of the snake. Uh, for is the that, snake. I think sure. seem to remember that. Mm. We're in the, the year of the cow now. Well, speaking of dogs. We're recording in 2021, by the way, just in case yes. you're listening to this years yes. in the future. If you're listening, if you find the digital chip all that's left of our civilization right. this was, <laughs> which could happen yes yeah. 2021 yeah 2021 when I'm long and buried into the next movement being the born in the year of the dog movement five is the tomb of the soulful hey, dog hey you get a movement too how about yeah, that at least I, if dog. I'm a dog I want to be a soulful dog yeah you would yeah. be a soulful dog so this one um, you, you, that'd be a good like nickname you soulful dog so like if you had a dog yeah you'd have to give him a soulful name <laughs> yeah. you know uh, that's what I'm going to say to you from now on you soulful you soulful, you soulful dog, dog. Well, thank you alright uh, this one this one has uh, the most obvious Chinese influences I thought because uh, it's a uh, well I guess in the form it's uh, uh, built on a Buddhist chant yeah uh, it's, it's really like a, beautiful it's on a Buddhist chant it's very slow mm. but it uh, explodes midway yeah. with some cymbals and very dissonant brass parts into these big string sections. And then it returns to the original melody, hmm. uh, but having a very sort of uh, Chinese-influenced uh, sound to it. Yeah. Shang, well, I think we mentioned this earlier, but Shang's whole approach is to marry 
Western yeah, sort of Western harmony region, with Chinese yeah. themes. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting project. Elliot Carter did something like this, by the way. He tried to get European and American sort of um, ideas together and it right. wound up with not sounding the same, but with something similar, things that didn't quite fit, but it right. made like a, a musical statement, you know? And uh, the last movement, mm. uh, actually, I, I noted that I liked this one the best, yeah. uh, The Flying Horses. Uh, this I, one... I personally like the first movement the oh, best. Okay. I, uh, I like this one because uh, the, it starts with this very dark, ominous, low brass intro. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we've got some sliding brass added to that. I, I think I heard an English horn there ever so briefly before it goes into these majestic brass features. Mm-hmm. The tempo increases, uh, rising string lines. Then there's lots of drums and cymbals, and it really sort of charges to this big climax, you know, the the flying horse. Yeah, the flying horse. It's a very um, majestic ending piece, I thought. And so it took me out with a bang. Yeah, goes out with a bang, as does the year of the horse generally. Yeah. All right. You can get uh, raw horse meat here in Japan, by the way, for our listeners. Oh. Yeah, bazashi. If anyone's uh, interested, pay us a visit. Yeah. Woo, oh come my, on over. Oh, my God. Giddy up. <laughs> yeah, we, just, we just lost our entire American audience. Oh, boy. Not not that we eat that, okay? We, <laughs> I've had it a few times. I like it. Have you? Yeah. Horse sashimi, they call it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I don't know that I've ever had that before. Oh, really? I'm not going to seek it out, though. It's better than the whale. I like so, horses. Yeah. yeah. I like cows, too, but I eat them. I don't know. Yeah. Go figure. Well, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> the last move, the last work on this is the Suzo Overture. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Again, I have no Suzhou? experience. I think it's more Suzhou. Suzhou. Okay. Yeah. I have no experience with the Chinese um, language. Ap- this one, apart, apart from the random things students have said to me. So know? I guess uh, reading the notes, occasional Chinese students. He wants to create a portrait of this uh, Suzhou as a, an ancient city. That mm-hmm. has become also a modern metropolis, and he wants to show that transition, and or the contrast. I contrast, think would be the better word. Um, yeah, because both both sort of exist side by side. Yeah, or or if you see it as like starting in history and coming ancient to modern, and I think the piece does it very well. It begins with uh, these slow. Uh, I don't know if this is a word, but I made it up anyway. Chinese esque. Mm-hmm. Um, melodies, uh, they're very pentatonic kind of things in the strings and woodrens. Then it it does swell, um, and uh, more instruments are added. We've got some nice muted trumpet and a hmm. pizzicato string section, and then it starts to build in excitement and tempo, rhythmic with lots of uh, percussion. It's like sort of now you can feel the beat of a modern city. Right. Uh, industrialization, pollution. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, but Probably, I, I suppose pollution yeah. too. Um, yeah. So it, it really gets the beat going and it ends with a gong. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, you... You, the ending is very different from the beginning, so you're sort of transported either through time or uh, maybe as you. I saw it more as a transition, but it could be a dual characteristics of this uh, place. Uh, so, yeah, whenever um, ancient cities are portrayed, they they're always sort of idealized as these kind of like just places where people uh, just lived and worked. But they were they were probably more polluted than a lot of modern cities. Yeah, and we don't re- ever get that. That sense of that, um, yeah. I, I like. Um, if 
if if you like a detective, if anyone out there likes detective fiction, there's uh, oh I do. Lin- Lindsay Davis writes about ancient Rome. Uh, her uh, well, he's not really a detective, but her character. Um, oh yeah, I read the I read three of these Falco Marcus yeah. Didius Falco, yes. and she uh, really goes out of her way to talk about how uh, there's disgusting something, there's something ancient pig. Rome was. Yeah, yeah. What's the name of the <laughs> look at it title? today? Yeah. It looks fascinating, but you know, yeah. at the time. Yeah, so those are enjoyable books. Lindsay Davis, uh, write that down to put that on your reading list. Yeah, okay, worth, well worth your time. All right, and um, what do I want to? Is there one last thing I want to say about this? Um, oh, Bright Shang uh, recorded on the Naxos label, and they have released a lot of his music. They've hmm. they get they get on these projects where they release say American composers, and this is. Um, on the 21st century Chinese classics uh, series in Naxos. So I guess there are other Chinese composers on it. Hmm. But Cheng has quite a few releases on there. There are four or five, I think. Wow. Okay. Maybe more. I, mean, I didn't really go through them all. But um, this is a composer where I, I want to urge listeners to um, to just hear this. Give it a listen one time. Uh, we'll provide you with the link. Um, it's uh, well worth hearing. It's accessible for... Uh, modern piece, but it's also quite entertaining. It's entertaining. Uh, it's uh, not. It's not really challenging. It's not challenging on the year, really. No. And uh, if you're um, in this uh, coronavirus time, you can't travel. This is uh, the sec- the the next best way to do it. Yeah, better than a slow boat. Better than a slow cruise. Yeah. <laughs> to China. <laughs> better than being Shanghai. Yeah. <laughs> As they say. Yes. For sure. Boy, those words are going to go out of the language, aren't they? Shang to be Shanghai. Yeah, we may be banned for just mentioning Yeah, that. well, I don't think the algorithm will pick that no. up, but listeners might. Anyway. Anyway. There uh, we go. We're good. well, we're we're older. What do you want from us? We were exposed to all of this. That's right. Know? There you go. Speaking of being exposed. Speaking of being exposed. On to jazz. On to jazz. I don't know what that has to do with uh, anything, but here we go. That's right. On to jazz and keeping that string theme thing going on here. Uh, we it's had a some, string thing. Yeah, today. string thing. We had um, violins to start with, and now we don't have violin jazz, although that exists. But we're moving over to the guitar, and we do have some unique guitar recordings. Yeah, how here. come no? How come no one ever wrote the air on the G string? Why is that? Come on, composers, let's go. I don't know why. Why didn't do that? Air on the G string. I want to hear it. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, we've got some interesting. We've got extra strings and things here. But uh, to begin with, we have sort of non-guitar guitar playing. What do I mean by that? Well, we have solo ballads on the Sony Masterworks label by Mr. Pasquale Grasso. Yeah. Yes. I want to mention, this is on the Sony Masterworks label, and they're kind of notorious for not having anything on, um, you know, digital yeah. media and yeah. yet these albums are all on digital media but they're not on CD yeah. why is that they're not on CD and until now they weren't really much well they weren't on Deezer until this album I, I think may have had them on Apple so I mean come on Sonny what's up do you want us to buy this or just not listen to them at yeah, all no. what's your strategy I don't know what's don't going know. on anyway anyway if you don't know Pasquale Grosso is kind of a uh, young youngish well Everyone's getting young compared to me now, but uh, he's about 30 year old sensation from Ariano Irpino in the Campania region of Italy. Uh, now he's 
making his home in New York, where he's an up-and-coming uh, player, and uh, lots of guitar players know about him. Uh, Pat Metheny says that he's one of the most significant new players that he's heard in many years. And um, the reason is, he doesn't sound like Pat Metheny. <laughs> <laughs> like, like other guitarists. Yeah, like other right? guitarists, like who seem to be a mixture of Pat Metheny, John Schofield. Maybe they get some of the ambiance of uh, Bill Fussell or something. But uh, Pasquale comes along and, uh, well, what is he doing that's so different here? It's that um, his approach to guitar is more piano-like. And uh, when you first hear him play, you might say, oh, this is like, this sounds like guitar jazz from the 40s or 50s. And yeah, the tone quality does on this really big uh, French hollow-bodied instrument he has. And he plays this material. Um and he plays it uh, like Bud Powell would play the piano. Uh, so he doesn't sound like Joe Pass or uh, Barney Kessel or, or some of those players. We have to listen a little bit deeper uh, to see what he's actually doing here. Uh, now, he's this is his vein. It's very much in the uh, traditional style of jazz. And he's recorded a number of albums here in the past few years on uh, Masterworks. He's got uh, the solo Bud Powell uh, solo a bird, solo monk, all these bebop things, solo standards. And now here, solo ballads. So he's got another album with solo holiday songs. It's oh, I'll have to hear that yeah, one. Christmas songs in this sort of thing. Um, so all of these are sort of in that same sort of block niche of traditional bebop jazz in you know, as guitar jazz solo performance. Uh, one other album that you will find on streaming that I can recommend is uh, a dedication to the great jazz harmonica player, uh, Toot Steelsman, a uh, mm-hmm. wonderful player who all modern uh, harmonica jazz players, the, well, I say all, however many there are, <laughs> they, they all pay a debt to him. But this uh, player who uh, does really nice work with him as an ode to Toots is uh, Merci Toots with uh, Ivanic Prene. Uh, that one's widely available and it's nice to hear uh, Grasso in combination with some other players uh, because most of the things here that you'll see on these other albums are just him in his solo performance. And uh, so what do we get here is Pasquale being really Bud Powell on guitar Um and he's playing all these standards really w- well with amazing technique. Uh, so he, he, I guess his uh, father was not, not a musician, but a collector of jazz music. So he heard these uh, piano albums by Bud Powell and others when he was young. And that sort of formed his concept. And he realized in order to sort of uh, take these ideas and implement them successfully on guitar, that he was going to need some kind of special technique. So he also... Uh, became accomplished in uh, classical studies. Hmm. Uh, and you, you'll see that if you um, watch his amazing technique. Uh, and so he successfully adapts this approach uh, from that period onto jazz in the modern era, a jazz guitar rather. And so we've got an album of all these standards here. Uh, and you'll know all of these tunes. We've got Embraceable You, Over the Rainbow, these foolish things, 
Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Yeah, I really like that one. Smoke yeah, Gets in nice. Your Eyes. Good tune. That's Jerome right. Kern. Nothing romantic. I think when I had a stogie outside, that happened to me. But I don't remember anything romantic Did about Smoke Gets in Your Eyes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it did. And okay. well, actually, when I was just... You know, last time I barbecued, I think I had some smoke in my eyes, too. But. Yeah. Uh, someone to Watch Over Me. Ooh, Gershwin. Yeah, that sounds a bit like... Big Daddy State or something. Yeah, it's now. a total, <laughs> yeah. not, nothing Orwellian about yeah. this song. It's yeah. a Gershwin song. It's, it's really Gershwin. great. Yeah, it's a nice yeah. song. Darn That Dream. Body and Soul, Don't Blame Me, When I Fall in Love, and Every Time We Say Goodbye. All these great uh, American songbook standard jazz mm. songs. And he plays them all incredibly well with very nice arrangements. I think uh, the standout one for me is... Uh, uh, over the rainbow because he he makes this really interesting uh, new introduction but they're all done really well and uh, the thing is with these you really have to this is part visual you really want to watch what he's doing here um, because to appreciate this sort of piano like adaptation you have to see what sort of physical um, physical positioning of the hand is necessary so uh, I'll include the uh, YouTube video for Over the Rainbow here. When you watch this, you'll see that his left hand is like some sort of uh, intergalactic arachnid. Yeah. It's, a, it's a spider yeah. uh, attacking the fretboard. Or like uh, I've seen other bass players exhibit this, but their their hands look like almost some sort of amorphous amphibian yeah. sort of thing. You wonder how can his joints be in all of these positions at once? Uh, it's pretty incredible uh, to to look at. And um, yeah, I don't think I don't think many people will want to try to copy it. You might end up with some severe arthritis or something but uh, he has amazing technique it enables his fingers but, to but be you'll have a lot of admirers if you play like this if you can play like this they were um yeah the um the the, the virtuosity yes. is really astonishing he's yeah. he's really some kind of player he sounds uh yeah, yeah really great he's great the only thing with this um uh, after you listen to several of these solo albums and that is you'll be Wanting to hear, you know, what would he do in an ensemble? What is he going to sound like with some other interaction? Because you'll get into this stylistic sort of uh, one pattern. And uh, really, you're in a time machine uh, with this kind of uh, thing. It sounds great and it's wonderful. It's a nice trip, but uh, you know the destination on every song. And mm. so I would recommend you can listen to this whole album or any of the other releases they're they're really wonderful musically and technically but um there's not going to be much new ground uh covered here so yeah i'm ready to hear grasso in some new format or with some other people to see what else he can uh yeah or do. with another instrument he's playing the yeah. electric guitar on this album and um he uses the same sound Throughout, I would have liked to yeah. have heard just some sort of variation in the sound. Um, he, he, you know, that that whole Bud Powell approach that he uses is, is sort of um, it, it gets a bit repetitive. Yeah. I mean, yeah. astonishing as it is, I mean, he's really yeah, a fantastic yeah. player. Just a little variety would have helped yeah, here. But, there's no yeah. palette of of tone color, you know. So yeah, yeah. I think um, I think this is an album you want to listen to a little bit at a time to really mm. appreciate what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's only, I believe, like 30 years old. Yeah. He's got a lot of ways to go. He's done so much uh, to now. And I hope uh, I hope a lot of people get to hear what he's doing 
Uh, come on, Sony. Uh, yeah, give this <laughs> listen. Up. I, I I sort of want to hear some of his older albums, especially the Monk yeah. one, and like you said, the the Bud Powell one, the which Bud is Powell where he one. gets his um, inspiration from. Yeah, and check and out he's the one really using that style. Uh, Merci Toots. That's a nice uh, okay. one. It's kind of more playful, and uh, with whenever you get to hear really good harmonica, yeah. uh, it's always nice too. So, a, being a big Monk fan, I'd like to hear that yeah, record yeah. too. But here you have you know standards. You know these tunes. Yeah, it's a good starting point. You you'll see what he can do and uh, where he's been with material that you know. Yeah. So. I hope we'll hear him with some oh, ensembles soon, though. I think yeah. we will. A lot of people will want to play with him. Hmm. So, uh, being on the string thing and having seen a few guitar releases, I could not resist doing this one as well. And uh, this one is also a very uh, technically accomplished uh, performer, but I think a little bit more daring in uh, content and approach and also probably lesser known because uh, he has not crossed the great ocean to America yet but still remains in Europe and uh, this we have the recording uh, To Be Frank on Berthold Records by Frank Wingle. <laughs> Good title. Yeah, he is Frank. He is Frank. Yeah. And he's being Frank. How, could, how could he be anyone else? Yeah, he's, and we wouldn't like him so. if he was somebody no, else. No, no, no. We wouldn't want him to be, uh, what was uh, Monteverde? Uh, Monteverde, uh, Greenberg. Greenberg, We want yeah. him to be Claude Greenberg. We no. want him to be Claudio Monteverdi. Claudio Monteverdi. So we want yeah. Frank yeah, we Wingold to be Wingold Frank Wingold. To be Frank Wingold. Um, and, uh, Needless to say, the alcohol has been flowing here at yes. R&M Studios. Yes, of course. <laughs> From beer to bourbon. Oh, boy. Yes. It's, it's getting ugly. Actually, you're getting better looking as the night goes. Uh, that's, that, that's, that's what she said. That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I keep my wife drunk all the time. Oh, yeah. oh. Ooh, whoa. <laughs> I'm telling you. All right. Uh, anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is a uh, album also featured in uh, Jazz Guitar Today, uh, as was uh, Grasso's album. But uh, this one is uh, something, I think, a bit more interesting, and um, yeah, this well, was who a- is Frank Wingold? Frank Wingold is uh, a, a German guitarist who's uh, studied jazz and classical guitar at uh, Hilversum Conservatory. Now he lives in uh, Cologne, Germany, and uh, plays in various uh, musical uh, groups. But he is also a professor of jazz guitar at uh, the University for Applied Sciences, Osnabrück. Germany, and he's a uh, teacher of jazz guitar at the Prinz Klaus Conservatoire. Uh, I can't, what's the last name? Groningen. I don't know if I'm saying that right. In the Netherlands. So he's a um, a experienced jazz player and a well-respected uh, academic figure in Europe. But uh, we wouldn't care about any of that if his music wasn't also kind of interesting and, and it is it is very good yeah. yeah now as far as his influences here he is both influenced by uh, guitarists so going back to uh, say blues guitarists from the 1930s and 40s reverend gary davis uh mississippi john hurt uh also classical music you can hear some uh classical tradition, uh, Spanish influences in his playing. But he also has some piano influences too. Uh, Not as much as uh, or 
singularly as uh, Grasso, but uh, you can hear uh, he's, he, that he quotes uh, Keith Jarrett being an influence, uh, as well as classical composers, uh, piano or keyboard music of Bach and other composers. So you hear all of those uh, incorporated in his style. Yeah, and um, he has rather a special guitar here, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, so he wasn't uh, satisfied with any regular guitar that um, <laughs> us mortals would struggle to play with just six strings. No, he has a, he has not one but two seven string. Yeah, seven string guitar, and he the, the what the, what's the seventh string? The it's uh, yeah. Apparently that no, I don't know. I have enough trouble with six strings, so I never yeah. uh, experimented beyond that. But uh, seven string guitars have been around in various genre and uh, traditions. Well, if you go back to early stringed instruments, they had some of them had like lots they had of like strings, eight hundred yeah. strings or yeah, something they were like all over. <laughs> and what was that Pat Metheny with a forty some? It, 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 I don't remember. Yeah, but I he mean, played, it's a ridiculous yeah. number of strings, right? Yeah. But seven strings have been used on guitars uh, intermittently, and sometimes that's with an extra high string mm. or low. But here we've got one extra bass string. Yeah. So that enables him to actually get more of a convincing bass effect. Which he does. He, he kind of plays, does. he isolates the bass line on that. It's and pretty amazing. also gives you more harmonic possibilities uh, with that. So, mm. yeah. So, and he's really uh, striving for and achieving, reaching the ability to play bass melody and chord accompaniment all at the same time or at least uh, seamlessly uh, trading off from those. Yeah, it um, kind of sounds like this uh, This recording has uh, more than one musician on it, but it does not. Yes, it's all yeah. him. And, and it's not It's not overdubbed either. And he, he proudly uh, states on his website that, uh, yeah, there's no overdubs and no uh, retakes. It's just as it is. And you, you will hear, if you listen closely to the recording, you'll hear a little bit of uglies in it. Um, there's lots mm -hmm. of uh, fing, uh, string noise and some other creaks and groans Those in there. String squeaks. That's all fine if yeah. it's all honest and real. And it doesn't detract from the performance at all. Uh, if you would like to hear him in another context, his previous recording is called uh, Entangled Music. And this is trio um, mm. So with bass and drums, and uh, this is from 2018. This is also very interesting. I, I just checked out a few tracks from it, but it'll give you a bigger picture of what he will do mm. uh, in you know the company of other musicians. But this one uh, serves up plenty of interesting music here. So I'll go through what he's got here. Mm. Now, he's got a collection of... Um, well, there's some standards and covers. Uh, they're not all necessarily standards here. And then one original. He seems to... Um, he's very modest in including his own composition uh, in, in his uh, notes about this, that you know he felt he had something he could include. Because then he also includes a series of uh, what he calls improvisations, which are untitled other than by number. And, uh, and it's not really clear if these were just on the spot uh, improvisations on an idea or if they had been worked out based on things beforehand. But um, so he is seeing himself as a composer is not a big part of his image, but that doesn't detract from what he's got here. Uh, and there's plenty of familiar things here. And what he does with the standards or cover compositions is... 
rather than playing them in uh, a style that you'll be used to, he uses them kind of as a springboard to create a unique musical environment. But yet, mm. he, he gives you enough of the melody that you're going to recognize the tune. And then, you know, that will be a link or a bridge to see what he's doing. So I think he does a nice compromise here. And uh, he alternates between the electric and the acoustic, although... The electric that he plays is a very pure tone. There's no effects on it. I think he just uses that because of the extra sustain and the tonal qualities it will get with the piece. Um, so it's not, it's not a vast difference in the term of the character. Yeah, for me, that um, the fact that he um, alternates between, between the electric and acoustic made this album more appealing to me than the the Pasquale Grasso, yeah. just because the the sound keeps changing and yeah. I, and that kind of really attracts the ear. It's a little bit of a variety here. Yeah. So we begin with uh, the jazz standard. The song is you, and this is on electric. Um. This one comes right out of the gate with this uh, finger-picking syncopated arpeggio riff is complete with harmonics. And then the, the melody line chords and bass, it's just sort of you like, who are these guys? Mm. Uh, no, it's just him. And there's a crazy arpeggio section. And then the melody shifts to the bass. And uh, you know, we're back. It's like a rip-roaring beginning. Just And you, you get a sense of his capabilities of moving all over the instrument. Yeah, it's and, pretty uh, amazing. The melody keeps moving yeah. you know, from to different part, different ranges. Yep. It, was, it was pretty great. And you see that you know he, he he's in command of all these different uh, parts, but he's doing them all at the same time. Uh, then he changes over to the acoustic, and we've got uh, this next track, My Shining Hour. Uh, this is kind of a rubato ballad beginning, and uh, it has like a, a pedal tone that seems to go through it, but the harmonic section uh, changes. And as he's keeping the melody, he's also very good at um, counterpoint with another melody in the bass. And it's not just like some sort of, you know, oh, I'm going along. He actually makes really nice melodies in the bass that are complementary to his his melody uh uh very well and uh you know you, 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 is this one guy here um yeah i know still, this but, really is an astonishing yeah. record you know, astonishing yeah. playing really yeah and mm. uh the third track is um him playing uh his original composition the only one on here uh, which is called uh, Escapade, hmm. his original. This is back to electric. Uh, this has some very... The, here you'll know that there's another string on the, on the guitar because you, you realize it's not possible to do something like this on a regular guitar because it's a very low bass line that's moving. And um, the, this one, the accompaniment to the melodies uh, mixes up the chord styles and the arpeggios in, a, in an interesting way. And so, yeah, it's a nice original composition. I'd like to hear some more of his own things. Uh, the next two tracks uh, I had highlighted as ones I particularly enjoyed. Uh, number four is uh, Joshua, and this is on uh, electric guitar. This is in a more funky vein. Uh, he's The song begins with a repeating bass riff, and then you've got uh, minor melody and chords that come in on top of that, and the three distinct parts uh, jump out at you. And I haven't heard anyone do you know three real separate parts since i heard uh the uh uk guitarist uh, martin taylor hmm. who is uh 
one one of the few guys I've heard who can can you know he can put a whole band into one hand. And uh, if you if you look on uh, YouTube, you'll see him breaking this down uh, with uh, the Gershwin "I've Got Rhythm" explanation, and uh, he explains it to you like like you know why don't you understand this? And he he shows you how his thumb does the bass line perfectly while his uh, you know a ring and pinky finger pull out the melody, and then the other fingers somehow get the chords in there all miraculously in sync. Uh, as a whole band in his hand and um, you'll just put your instrument away and never never want to play again after you see that um, but uh, yeah. or it may inspire you and yeah, you want to work harder That's, I always kind of yeah. feel like you know when you, when you see a, a, a great musician people say oh I'm just never going to play again so I'm never going to do that but I don't know I think yeah. it always kind of makes me want to try harder and just kind of reach a higher right. level but yeah other than Martin Taylor um, yeah, Frank Ringgold here uh is the closest I've seen to someone making uh, all these parts that seem to have an independent consciousness uh, hmm. behind them. So this this tune illustrates it uh, very well. I also liked uh, his treatment of uh, the standard alone together. Hmm. Uh, number five, he's back to the acoustic here. It starts off with a brilliant uh, harmonic kind of flutter in a Spanish style. And then uh, in this song, he effortlessly trades a high and low register melody lines uh, and a very beautiful playing. So that's very nice. Uh, keeping on the acoustic to the next tune, uh, I'll be seeing you. Uh, this is uh, into a real swing style. Hmm. And I think here he, re he really shows the kind of piano playing style more than the other tracks uh, in the way that uh, the melody is... Uh, supported by the chords uh, more in a way that a pianist would do than a guitarist. Uh, but then he also shows in the melodic areas uh, very much uh, guitar-like runs. So I think he's covering both worlds, guitar and piano sort of treatment. So this is nice. Then he's back to electric for number seven, uh, Feel Like Funkin' It Up. I really dug this. Yeah, this, this is, is good. cool. <laughs> and this is like a, a brass uh, New Orleans marching. I don't know. He, I guess he just heard this tune and he liked it. But yeah. but he takes it someplace else because uh, he gives it sort of a country boogie feel. Yeah. And so he's got this funky staccato bass line. But above that, he puts this uh, kind of country swing mm. melody with these uh, like really sustained... Uh, country sort of sounds but they have bluesy bends and trills in them so yeah this one's like stylistically mixing yeah, lots of things he's together he's really funking it up as much as he's country yeah it up, i guess yeah. you could say here but you know he's from germany so you know, well yeah. all that american Maybe he thinks stuff. it's all the same thing it could right? be you know, yeah. no i i doubt that's I doubt true, that's true <laughs> but you know anyway we're, we're just kidding it's a lot of fun mm. then uh Back to the acoustic, and I really like this uh, treatment of It Might As Well Be Spring, which is a lovely uh, melody and song. He's got some amazing arpeggios uh, that he starts out. Then he brings in the melody, but he still keeps playing the arpeggios. So uh, how many fingers does he have? <laughs> is he secretly barring Grasso's tarantula left hand and using it here? Um, I don't know. On his right hand? On his right oh, hand. Yeah, it's horrifying to think like about. This. But then he, he alternates with these sort of block chords and then these arpeggios. And still, the, he managed to put in a bass line that's intelligently harmon harmonizing the hmm. the melody. And you're like, you know, 
How did you how did you think of all this stuff? Yeah, how how can I, you even do know. this? I think my poor brain would just explode yeah. if I tried to do something like this. And the final um song, uh titled song is Pinocchio on Back to Electric. And this one's really uh rhythmically free. Uh it has kind of interesting harmonization and uh again here he's able to put this wandering bass line that complements the melody uh really well uh it's not just some mechanical progression or something so he's hmm. you know, he's he's thinking top and bottom at the same time and creating you know something that is you know pleasing and intelligent at the same time so yeah a uh, nice work with these arrangements Frank, <laughs> we really like these. <laughs> he, he's, yeah. he's he's very frank. Yeah, in these in these, and but but that's not all. There's a no, lot more left. So yeah, that would be enough for an album by any normal yeah, nine tracks, human. right? That's yeah, enough. enough. Call it a day. But he gives us uh, a whole series of tracks from his improvisations, and curiously, the numbers are not sequential. So we start with three and we end with one. Um, I guess maybe he the numbers refer to the order they were thought of, but then maybe he just put them in the best uh, order to complement the program. Yeah, the, the, these are improvisations, but they were apparently, I com, you know, they're impro- improvised and then he written down. I guess composed. And then he probably, uh, yeah, you know, it's hard to I don't know. know how. It's hard to know because if you call a piece improvisation number three, uh, obviously you've kind of. You know, played around with it probably, before, yeah. Well, you've probably written it down after yeah. you came up with it. So it's hard to know how much had been decided or how much was impromptu. But it doesn't really matter. Um, these give you some insight into how he probably creates his arrangements from other material. So, yeah, they're well worth hearing. Um, what I would recommend probably is after you listen to these nine um, other tracks, take a break. Yeah, and uh, listen to these freshly so that you can uh, be ready to follow his uh, development. So we start with uh, Improv Three. This is a repeating four interval figure uh, in the bass, and that becomes the basis for uh, an improvised melody that goes uh, here and there. And you'll be able to see how he, you know, develops ideas just from a sort of simple motif. Uh, Next after three is number two. All these improvs are on acoustic, uh, by the way. Number two is Mm -hmm. a sort of Spanish-style opening riff, which he develops some nice melodies out of the implied modalities from those intervals, which is nice. Then we've got uh, improv number six. This is uh, more syncopated with a kind of staccato riff. Lots of fast lines, uh, some double stopping, playing in here, nice technique. It's very interesting. Uh, next, improv number four. Here, uh, this is kind of a, a chase of high and low lines of improvised melody that are interspersed with these really kind of dense chords. Uh, so you, you've got some creative melodic and harmonic uh, improvisation. Then number eight. Uh, this is kind of something sparse that develops into a minor melody with a bass accompaniment, a little bit mysterious. And finally, we end with number one. Uh, this sort of starts out with another repeating interval that's sort of uh, reminiscent of Over the Rainbow, like a do de do de do de do de And then uh, to that interval, he adds melody and bass. And as he develops it, uh, sometimes that interval will change in the repetition and then the harmony changes. 
Then he changes the rhythm and it becomes syncopated. And then somewhere in the development, then the interval disappears and you're onto something completely new. But then he brings it back, uh, returns to ground bass and then, you know, takes us out with that. Uh, so, yeah, if you listen carefully and look at the elements, you can follow the process and see what he develops. And then you get an insight into also how he, you know, worked on the ideas for the standards. So, um, yeah, it's a very highly crafted album uh, with a lot of uh, technique. And I will include the video, which is called uh, a sampler hmm. to this album. And it has a few clips of him playing multiple songs on the album. And uh, another hmm. one, just like Grasso, it's interesting to see someone with a seven-string guitar and uh, anyone who plays just guitar Just to see a seven-string like guitar yeah. is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. I will say about this album, I thought I liked the variety of it a lot. Yeah. It, it kept me listening. And uh, uh, there were a lot of covers, or a few is original, but after track nine Pinocchio he does all the improvisations and they're a little more abstract it's kind yeah. of like a real jolt because you don't really know what you're it is, suddenly everything is unfamiliar and yep. I, I kind of felt like these are two albums kind of tacked together I think uh, for the best listening experience or to you know you should stop after Pinocchio and go back to the improvisations and another yeah. listen yeah. I think it's better to break this record up to really yeah. get it because I thought that was kind of an abrupt change it is but at the same mm. time I can see why he did it because mm. if someone who you know, probably most people haven't heard of him. If someone just, you know, releases an album called Jazz Improvisations One <laughs> to Nine, it's I like know. yeah, you, you, no yeah, one's ever going to. I think I'll pass to it. on this yeah. one, right? But yeah. so you just put him in there. And, you have a uh, better chance of, you know, this is what I can do, and you're yeah. already listening. So yeah. It's, it's yeah, I think that's so, a pretty but, nice trick. At the same time, also, I, I'm rather happy that he didn't like sandwich them between the. Um, standards too because then your concentration would be you know rather um broken up uh yeah to, to that do would that. be odd too yeah. yeah so yeah in in the big picture yeah listen to the standards take a break and then think about what you've learned about this uh in incredibly uh proficient guitarist and uh jazz musician and then come back and listen to the improvised uh takes yeah. for the best yeah anyway recommended for all the guitar heads out there these two yeah. albums really great both of these albums uh watch these guys um the common thread is that their approach to playing the guitar is non-standard yeah. and also has a lot of piano influence so and it's amazing <laughs> Yes, amazing. But you could expect no less. Um, of course. Adult from, music. From adult music. Yes. We're not going to give you average stuff here. No. Although we might. It depends on uh, what we pick for we that might, week. And it might we would, us. Feel, you never we, we would feel really bad because, you know. No, we wouldn't. We would just trash it. I, but life is so short. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, that's right. We, we would be over with the review already. Um, <laughs> the, the, all right. Yeah. We just say this isn't worth listening to. It's not to. worth listening Next to. Next review. That would have to be something recommended by a Grammy uh, nominee or something. Well, right or now. yeah, the awards. Or sometimes, you know, the way I kind of choose stuff is kind of, I'll, um, it's, it's, it'll be an artist I like. So yes. I know that I want to hear it. And I, maybe I won't listen to it first, but I'll just recommend it. And then maybe it'll just be a dud. It could be a disappointment. But yeah. that's, it's rare yeah. that that happens. But, um, 
Yeah. And it, it has happened before already in the previous yeah, episodes. Yeah, it has happened. So I guess it's not so and it may happen again. Think. It may happen again. We want to keep you uh, on your toes here on the Adult Music Podcast. And uh, I'm happy to say that the final album for this week is not a disappointment. No, uh, not it's at all. Actually a, we have no disappointments a, no. this week. This one's actually a great surprise uh, because I didn't know this artist very well. Um, and uh, he delivers some very unique things. And the recording is called Natural Habitat. Yeah. Uh, no, this is not a recording of environmental sounds of mm. endangered frog species or something of that nature. But uh, rather, I believe it uh, refers to the performers uh, transitioning between environments of Boston and New York from yeah. his native Florida. And it's on Sunnyside Records. And that uh, performer is the Alto saxophonist Michael Thomas. Alto saxophone, an, and, an instrument with yes. a lot of uh, amazing practitioners. Yeah. There's so many great historical practitioners. alto sax players historically and now. So why did I pick this one? Uh, I have to confess that because not only does he play alto saxophone, but also bass clarinet. And and you know that that turns me on. Yeah, bass clarinet. The bass clarinet. I'm one of those guys who, you know, if I, if I don't want to do something, you could just say to me, I have some bass clarinet. And then That's I'll right. like change my mind. Because yeah. I just love that low reed sound. That something low about reed. it. Not Lou Reed, but low reed. Well, I like Lou yeah. Reed too. Yeah. But that's a but I like different low, kind of I like thing. low reed better than Lou Reed. Yeah, I do too. And um, yeah. <laughs> so I saw this. Wow. And um, so we've got this album here with... Uh, said Michael Thomas alto saxophone bass clarinet Julian Shore on piano uh, Rhodes piano and synthesizer only on one track with those which we'll mention in a moment Hans Glauschnig it's a hard name to say Glauschnig I don't know if I'm saying that right sorry Hans Uh, anyway uh, he's playing bass very well and the easier pronounced Jonathan Blake on drums Mm -hmm. and uh, so Thomas himself, uh, Florida-born, now New York-based, uh, he did his undergraduate studies at the University of Miami. He went to Boston to the New England Conservatory hmm. uh, to get his master's degree. Uh, he's been a sideman to Brad Meldow, Nicholas Payton, and also he's a co-leader of the Grammy-nominated big band, the Terraza big band i should mention also florida born brad meldow brad meldow yeah Yeah. brad meldow well anyway we'll talk more about brad meldow maybe in a future episode episode. no we definitely will i like brad meldow and we will i like him sometimes um anyway um since he apparently uh thomas coming to new york in 2011 uh only 10 years ago or so, but he made a big splash and uh, a big impression and made it into the probably the most competitive music scene in the world uh, in uh, not too long of a time. And also since uh, September 2018, he's been on the faculty at the University of Hartford's Hart School of Music uh, in the uh, Jackie McLean Jazz Studies Institute. Uh, so... Although it's hard to tell how old he is, really. Um, I'm not sure. But he can't be that old. Uh, and uh, now that I'm getting old, everyone sure. is young. Yeah, everyone just seems Everyone's young to young. me now. It's really funny how that yeah, happens. It's really funny, yeah. But I like it. You get some gravitas, and then you can just 
push off uh, yeah. some unneeded, unwanted younger fluff. I guess. Uh, but no need to do that here because we've got a really cool player. And uh, we've got an album of all original music here. Hmm. And uh, we're going to start off with Float. And from the first tune, uh, you'll get Thomas's uh, whole basic concept with a really nice alto sound. Uh, it's it's a nice sound when it needs to be, but also can get that edge of tone for tension on the right parts of phrases. Uh, you also see that uh, he can really build a solo. He's got a mature playing style uh, that uh, he's not going to release all of his uh, climax. Did I say that? On, on release his climax? You didn't hear that, listener. These aren't the well, droids you're looking for. What I'm trying to say is that um, <laughs> um, he will extend his musical uh, what am, now, extend now his yeah, ex- <laughs> well, stop it now stop. let's just go back <laughs> to the beginning we're losing let's it go here back. Um, yeah let's go back and try this again he's a he is a mature soloist who uh, will develop his musical ideas at sort of a spaced out rate among the performances so he saves <laughs> something for each tune right and yeah so he keeps you listening and surprising you with what he can do uh, musically in each song. Uh, and, and that's really nice. Uh, so you don't hear everything in the first song and then you're like, what, didn't I hear this before? No. He continually surprises through this album. And uh, particularly in the uh, choices of material here are the work in uh, time signatures and meters, uh, which keeps the listener guessing. And I'm assuming that, uh, yeah, keep these guys on their toes for performing this. So this first piece, uh, Float, uh, seems to be it's swinging right along, but it's in seven four. So you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then you're back to that. Yeah, so. I guess to say this is a very subtle yeah album. These yeah. things aren't really noticeable nope. the first time you listen. It's nope. it, you have to really hear this a, a yeah. few times to pick up on these things. You have to. I'll, I'll confess, I didn't pick up on them. So. Yeah, took me two Rest listens. Listen carefully. Took here. me two listens to like um, really get down to what's going on with the time. Uh, the other thing, a uh, really nice piano player on here, uh, Julian Shore. Uh, he contributes a lot of nice solos, uh, one here, especially with lots of space that's nice. And that, also, that's a name to remember, by the way, Julian Shore. I'm going to yeah. want to hear uh, him a little bit more. This is really fantastic, really interesting. He does playing. a lot of nice things, um, but what I noticed right here, uh, well, lots of space. Also, uh, one of these uh, pianists who... He, he'll develop a line that uh, as it's ascending or descending will sort of turn on a point and go in the opposite direction where you would expect someone else to extend, you know, with the momentum of the right. phrase. Yeah. So he keeps you sort of on, uh, his, you know, pins and needles as to what direction his solos are going. And I, I always mm-hmm. like that in a pianist. So, yeah, that's the first track, which uh, goes into the next track uh, called Different Time. And we get some difference here because we switch over to bass clarinet, which was what I was waiting to really hear. And uh, he doesn't disappoint. We've got a nice bass clarinet intro. Um, and that's what turned me on yeah. to this record. <laughs> got that bass nice clarinet. tone, uh, which he plays really well. Obviously, classically trained. So he's got, uh, you know, the full command of the instrument and that beautiful tone. The bass and drums come in softly. We get into a mellow kind of jazz waltz, um, which he builds up here. Again, showing that 
ability to build a solo to a climax really nicely. The rhythm section never overpowers him. Uh, we get a nice bass solo. And uh, yeah, the bass, uh, his technique and also the sound of his instrument has got that really woody, like when you hear it, you can almost... You can almost smell the axe into the tree, you know, that kind of, <laughs> ah, yeah, you know, taste that hickory smoke and right. uh, kind of uh, bass. And uh, nice piano backing, sparse piano chords. Yeah, so we get our first taste of the bass clarinet, uh, which goes into the next piece uh, called First. I have, I have to say, Mr. Thomas is very economical with his uh, song titles. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> one word. Like one word titles. Yeah, for at a stretch a few, for two, two words, yeah. Two words is the longest yeah. title. Um, here we get uh, on First, uh, another upbeat piece. This time we're out of the swing. We're into a more even beat. Um, not really Latin, but just even eighth notes. Uh Nice, again, woody tone, syncopated bass solo. Mm. Uh, then we get uh, another expertly built alto solo, you know, just built up to a great uh, climax. And then the character of the piece uh, changes. The beat gets heavier. It sort of turns into, you know, almost like a rock type beat. Mm. And then Thomas comes back in and uh, he sort of uh, goes outside, as they say, uh, playing outside of the chord changes with some, you know, dissonant things to build tension but it, you know it, it's all really calculated to add to the climax of the piece sounds really good uh the next tune is the title track natural habitat this one's really a hard swinging piece uh swinging along in that kind of uh, post bop uh you know genre you can yep. see why he made this the title track yeah really. it's, yeah it's really attention grabbing yeah uh he builds a solo lots of changing rhythmic figures uh and he, and what's great if you listen to this piece listen to the end of the solo you know they must have worked on this piece a lot so when he hits the end everyone knows exactly that the climax has come and they hit that phrase with a nice syncopated ending and everyone is synced to that uh you know it's a it's a difficult phrase but they all know it's coming and they all hit that and it's um, very cool yeah really cool locks in and then and then you get another piano solo and with these changing direction lines uh, that's really cool. But then it ends up with these huge chord chimes that, you know, mm. sort of like uh, hitting the bells or something together, which is cool. I, I love this pian those widely spaced piano chords. Yeah. It's always a good effect for yeah. me. Especially when you end up yeah. that way. Dun, dun, and yeah. it's like you're out there. And we got a <laughs> nice drum solo here, back to the head, and you're out with a nice successful title track. Now, the next tune is, uh, you know, for any, uh, I don't know, I, I, should, I was going to say something, but I'm not going to say This is it. Harbor? Yeah, Harbor. Okay, um, if, you, if you're obsessed with numbers uh, or, or some kind of uh, um, challenged in that way, try counting out what's going on in this song. Uh, if you can do it, uh, send us an email. Let us know what you you get here. Uh, we got lots of constantly changing meters. Uh, sometimes it feels waltzy, but it's not really a waltz. Also, the harmonies are really interesting. Uh, yes, it's sort of a little musical problem challenge here. I never really got to the bottom of it. Um, well. I was just like listening to it rather than counting out and seeing it. I'd love to see the chart for it, though, right, yeah. so I could see it. But um, yeah, another really nice piano solo here. Uh, Harbor, uh, very good. Uh, followed by fourth, 
Another one-word title. <laughs> this one starts as a slow ballad, but he really he he gets out some uh, flame accelerant, I should say, and he pours it over himself until he builds a burning sax solo. Uh, lots of time to build up to this climax, and the other players are, you know, waiting uh, to follow him. No one's in a hurry, and then it mellows out at the end again. Uh, a nice build. Then we get to uh, demise wow, what a title uh, this was a pretty intriguing yeah. track actually I, I, this one grabbed my attention right yeah. away this one will catch you with this piano riff at yeah. the beginning which is in another impossible sort of time figure it I guess it's in it's not in 12-8 it's like in 13-8 maybe there's one hmm. part of it that has an extra beat so in just one of these clusters you hear that um, and so how do you really count it I'm not sure but you'll catch that extra tone uh, and what's cool about this, so the keyboard breaks the normal acoustic piano setting and then we get uh, Rhodes piano, uh, electric piano in the left hand and this sort of nostalgic synth lead from, you know, a Moog sound uh, only in the solo section for the keyboard solo. So you've got synthesizer uh, lead and Moog, uh, or rather Rhodes in the left hand and then comes in after that with a bass clarinet solo, you know, so, uh, you know, lots of interesting things here. And then when the drum solo happens here, it's not an isolated drum solo, but the piano builds the chords through that. So you, you get this really, um, I wouldn't, I won't say it's bombastic in a, in a volume sense, but there's a lot happening in the drum solo here, but it you can still follow the harmonic progression because the piano keeps up with that. So this is an interesting track in a lot of ways. Excellent, excellent track. I like. Yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it. It really is a different. Yep. It changed the mood yeah. right, that we were hearing up until this time. And uh, the next one, another. <laughs> well, I guess no, no words. No I guess words. You ran out of titles. Yeah, you ran out of titles. Mr. Um, Mr. Thomas obviously isn't being paid by the number of words no, in his titles. No, no. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this one is. Um, Nice to, uh, it starts out with an interesting piano intro that goes into a, like a free robot, rubato sax phrases. When the piano comes back in, the chord style is very rolling. It's mm -hmm. not, uh, so you know, it creates some kind of wavy motion. And then by the time the song gets going, you get some of these kind of intense uh, sax, uh, I guess we don't like to use this, sheets of sound so oh that sheets yeah. of sound yeah yeah i'm uh, not a fan of the yeah. sheets well, of sound call it no, not the sound but the expression, the expression sheets yeah. of, i don't like I don't that know. description i don't so think it's it really gives me an idea of, uh, of harmonic wallpapering like. uh yeah. i don't know anyway he's uh, harmonic wallpaper that might be better <laughs> be, i don't know yeah i'm not an interior decorator yeah either. I can barely name the colors. It's decorating but, the interior yeah. of my mind yeah anyway <laughs> uh yeah he's um He's doing these, um, you know, uh, lines that imply lots of harmonies. At a, 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 you know, he uh, Thomas has really good technique, but he's he's not one to show it off without a reason. But uh, here he lets loose with some lines, as he does in other places, and uh, yeah, it shows another aspect of what he's capable of. And uh, so this piece is kind of interesting. And then I take it that the the next track was meant to be the actual last album track, although uh, it's not really the last track um, on all the release versions. I'm not sure what the story is, but this is Two Cities, and I take it this refers to 
uh, his sort of splitting of his early career between Boston and New York. Uh, and uh, this one is another uh, rhythmic puzzler. I think I got it almost figured out, but then I felt like the the pianist stuck his tongue out at me at the end and said, you think you got it figured out? Uh, it's a very interesting tune that for most of it, the, the riddle seems to be three bars with five beats and then a bar with six beats. So just when you got settled into a groove, it throws you off and then you're back into that. Um, and then, uh, although I, th I think it starts out with sex, but uh, we've got more bass clarinet in the middle. Uh, so we get a, a final bass clarinet sort of section here. Another great piano solo. And as I said, when you, when you get to the end of this uh, rhythmic adventure, the piano ends in uh, six. <laughs> so you, wait, was I really counting in five or not? You have to sort of question yourself. Um, this will require a few more listens to yeah, figure out what's actually what's going happening. On here. So they obviously set up lots of um, rhythmic obstacle courses, but when they pull off the solos, they really do it well without mm. uh, tripping over anything on this recording. So yeah, a high sense of uh, technical accomplishment, but really artistic soloing uh, and uh, integration by all the players. This one's great. And uh, at least on the streaming version, we end up with one more tune called For Now. Um, this one is sort of a uh, contemplative melody in the sax that develops into a real burning sax solo. And when he when it gets to the end of this track, he's really burning. Yeah, it's incendiary. And then it sort of fades out. Yeah, and so, um, it fades out. A jazz Why? fade out. Yeah, you don't a hear that too often. Out. Yeah. When does that happen? Yeah. I wanted to hear the rest of the solo. There might have been great stuff in there. Yeah. Or maybe there wasn't. And that's why they faded out. Yeah. I really don't maybe know. Maybe his reed split when he hit that really high. Oh, who knows? I don't know. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm. a nice uh, wailing sax outro while it lasts on this tune, which may not, may or may not be on the CD release or something, but it was on Deezer it's anyway. It's on Deezer. We heard it. Yeah. So, um, in summation... Michael Thomas, a very proficient and um, mature uh, sax soloist, a, a great band here, uh, especially notable, this uh, woody bass sound, nice piano solos. Yeah, the piano, the pianist name one more time. Something Just sure. Uh, Julian Shore? Julian Shore. Yeah. That's right. Keep, uh, keep an ear out for him or an eye out. Hans Glawaschnig, bass, Jonathan Blake drums okay uh, all very excellent musicians who play well together and i should say that um here we've got an album after we've just listened to an album of complete standards an album of standards or covers with then some original material and now this album 100 percent original material so this requires a different approach a more adult listening approach because you're not going to recognize anything here and so this is going to take a few listens before you you know get comfortable with the melodies and uh things like that so I, as a musician you know to release something like this is more of a risk uh I, i'm you know i haven't heard, i know that he's re he's uh appeared on more than 30 recordings i'm not so many, I'm sure how many as a leader thomas has done but you know some artists uh, will release a completely original album, I think, too new, hmm. uh, especially vocalists. Right. Uh, 
And, um, you know, you sort of have to show what you can do with the established repertoire. You got to get your voice out there. And what I appreciate most is when, you know, uh, instrumentalists, rather than only record their own originals, uh, when they also pay an ode to other players, you know. Right. So let's do a Freddie Hubbard composition or a Gary Bartz or mm. something like that uh, to throw in there because those tunes deserve to be re-recorded by the next generation of musicians. But uh, it seems that uh, Thomas here, you know, he's got a theme with his sort of life pattern of uh, music career and his different places and uh, how these cities that he's played in has um, affected his development. You know, so that's, a, you know, seems to be a valid and mature approach and he carries it off well, but it will uh, require something of the listener to invest to hear these melodies and uh, complex music. And hey, it's worth the investment as, uh, you know, what's the difference between art and entertainment? You know, mm. the entertainment comes to you and you go to the art. Uh, and this one's well worth going to. Uh, I'd like to hear more from him in the future, and I'll keep my ears open. I enjoyed this yeah, as well. Yeah, this is good. Uh, Michael Thomas, if, <laughs> if you listen to this review, thanks for playing the bass clarinet. Uh, yeah, you know, I keep, enjoyed the bass clarinet. Keep, keep you that really, up. You really you know, uh, got me going um, there. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, and your alto playing is, is really good too. Coming up. Uh, I have a few more sax releases. One definite for next week. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah we've, we've got more Italians. We've got an Italian thing. We've got Italian I, things, I think we've yeah. mentioned this before, but nevertheless. The Italians are just really good at playing they are. other things. They so. are. Um, okay. Before we go, though, mm. I want to end on eh, maybe a sad note. Um, I want to acknowledge the the oh. death of the German mezzo-soprano Christa Ludwig this oh. week. Um, or at least since the last podcast, at the age of 93. Uh, mm. So she lived a good long life and had a really successful career. Um, she was one of the um, voices that introduced me to the Mahler leader back in the 80s when I was listening. Mm. Um, she recorded with uh, Herbert von Karajan and the Berlin Philharmonic a lot and had a long career before that. So um, you know, rest in peace, Christa Ludwig. And I'd like everybody to, if you don't know who she is, check out your um, streaming service and give her a listen. Uh, it was a magical voice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Rest in peace. We probably should have said that at the beginning, but I just thought of it now. Well, so. we don't want to start off on him. Well, we don't want to end that a sad note either. We don't end a sad note either. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever. Yeah. But there we go. All right. So coming up, we've... Oh, more, more, you know, more vocals. Well, not next week though. I've got, I'm actually staying away from vocals next week because we okay. do have more vocals coming. Please up. space out these operas for me. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, or I, at least sopranos. We yeah. may have mentioned this before, but I, I'm pretty. Um, yeah, we 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 both said that. Uh, you know, we prefer instrumental music to yeah. vocal music. That's true with me, but in classical music, but we there have been so many like familiar names coming out with the vocal recitals that mm -hmm. I wanted to hear them and so we've done them and yeah. I know just from experience in my um, in my writing that um, people who listen to classical music the majority of them like vocal performances and opera sorry they, to hear that uh, I don't, I'm not sorry to hear it but I, I just wish they'd listen to more instrumental music which is what I'm kind of trying to push them towards so next week I think I'm not really sure but I think we're all instrumental next week in classical so. anyway oh, okay yeah. All right. So I don't have to get my 
soprano nerve ending tape safety covers next <laughs> or no. or your um, you know your uh, foreign language dictionary <laughs> you won't yeah, need that yeah all right great yeah yeah <laughs> I actually like breaking out the foreign language dictionary. It kind of makes yeah, me uh, happy. Well, we've got interesting lyrics. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, well, I've I've at least guarantee you another burning sax release for next week. Oh, I can't uh, wait for that. And yeah, I'm a couple a couple others in the pipeline just waiting for the release dates. Um, it's kind of curious these days because uh, the things get released on un, sort of unsynced timetables whether the cd is out there or you can listen to it on streaming or it's announced when it's announced and so you've got to keep your eyes uh, open for when things actually become available but yeah uh, there's a few things on my radar i've got one locked down though yeah so. actually next week we will have a vocal but um album but it won't be a solo vocal it'll be a choral, choral. vocal album and i'm choosing it because it's another one of those composer anniversary albums and i want to uh make sure people are aware of this very important anniversary i'm not going to tell you who it is if you want to know tune tune in in next week tune in next week that's right okay that's a wrap then so it's been episode 12 of adult music it certainly has been episode 12 it's been episode 12 and a half i would say 12 and a half uh next week is lucky episode 13 13, yeah (laughs) And uh, so thanks for listening (laughs) to the podcast with music for the mature mind. If you made it this far, just uh, remind you again, uh, please do subscribe or follow us on whatever app or service you've been listening to us on. And if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, we'd appreciate it. That will help us uh, be noticed more in the recommended categories and help us grow our audience reach more listeners interested in jazz and classical music. And if you'd like to contact us directly, uh, once more, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. So until next week. Give us a five-star review, too. Nothing to lose. If you think we're only worth four stars, wait till we have a million listeners we need the five stars for the algorithm we need to be noticed please yeah okay. let us get noticed yeah um, just give us that little click uh, but we'd also be uh, interested in hearing from you we've got a growing audience but we don't know much about you on the corners of the earth from India to Romania to Brazil to Sweden to South Africa to Kenya and other points hmm. uh, yeah we've got about 730 some downloads up to this week uh, but uh, not too much uh, personal feedback yeah so, let yeah, us know who you are let us know who you are we'd be interested to uh, know what you listen to and uh, what you get out of the podcast and uh, if we get anything interesting we'll share it in an upcoming podcast so until next time with lucky 13 and happy listening this week Happy listening this week. We'll see you next time on Adult Music. Mm-hmm.